and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside Drew. Howdy. And TJ. Hello. And today we'll be speaking with our special guest, Holly Griffith. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPEX, a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about Specs and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. And send us an email to participate in this conversation at specscast at gmail.com. Okay, so today we're talking to NASA engineer Holly Griffith and her experiences working on human spaceflight programs. Hi, Holly. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Great. Um, so first things first, can you tell us uh, what you do at NASA and a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, so currently, um, this is the fourth program I'm working on at NASA. Uh, I started out with shuttle, then I went to ISS. I did a little bit with Constellation before that was um, axed, I guess you could say. Now I'm currently working on Orion. I'm a, uh, this is, <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous how long this title is. I didn't invent this for myself to sound important, but I'm a vehicle systems engineer for the ECLIS, which is the in- Environmental Control and Life Support System on the Orion program in safety and mission assurance. I know, right? It's like, how do you how do you put that in your email signature? I don't it's know. It's very descriptive. <laughs> I'm still working on that. Um, so basically, we're, uh, I'm in safety. I'm an engineer. I'm a safety engineer on the Orion uh, program. And I my system is the ECLIS or the life support system. So it's, uh, think of your consumables, your water, your nitrogen, your oxygen, basically anything you need to keep the crew alive and anything you want to prevent uh, from killing them. So think fire, you know, uh, (laughs) uh, loss of air pressure, right? So things like that. So that's what I do. Great. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to NASA in the first place and, and how you got into space engineering? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I'd love to talk about that. Um, so what brought me to NASA in the first place was Princess Leia. Um, cool. I, <laughs> I'm a huge Star Wars fan. I've always been a huge Star Wars fan. And uh, Leia was, when I was growing up, was unlike any other female character I'd, you know, I'd, we'd ever seen before. She was just different. And I was like, I kind of want to go in space. So it started out with like every little kid who wants to be an astronaut. And so um, that's kind of what started me on the path of engineering because I researched astronauts and they, a lot of them had engineering degrees. So I was like, okay, I can do this. So I, um, I went into mechanical engineering and it was, you know, the, the numbers haven't really changed much. When I went into into engineering, it was still about 20% women. And now it's still about 20% women, but it was still Leia who just, you know, she was always like the only woman in the room, the only woman on the Death Star, the only woman in, pretty much on the on indoor, you know, like wherever she was, she was kind of the only girl. And and just seeing those movies and seeing her just really not care just kind of gave me that courage to, you know, I was one of two women in my graduating class. And so she really inspired me. And then she kind of gave me the courage, you know, to just not be intimidated. So uh yeah, I'm where I am because of Princess Leia. So yeah, that's a great story. Um, the fir- the first thing I thought of when I'm thinking of Star Wars getting people into space is 
Does it bother you when Star Wars breaks the rules of physics? Or is no. that because so, I know some engineers it, and some nerds t- say like, "Oh, orbital mechanics says it, that that didn't happen." So it bothers me when other movies do, but I give Star Wars a pass because it it's like I mean they have the force. It's you know so it's like they kind of already started by breaking the rules. I will say with little things like the Last Jedi because when Star Wars started off, they kind of didn't really care, but now they. You, they advertise that they make a point to pay so much attention to the tiny details that I kind of take them to task now. And so, like in the Last Jedi, whenever at the very beginning, whenever they they drop those balls, um, yeah. and I'm yeah, you know, and they all went down. I was like, they're not supposed to go down in space. <laughs> and then I got the visual dictionary, and they actually and I tweeted about it, and they <laughs> and I got the visual dictionary, and they actually had an ex- explanation for it. I was like. All right, I'm wrong. That's funny. <laughs> so, yeah, they're like magnetic or something. I'm like, wow. Okay, All right, sorry, good job, was, guys. Good yeah. job. <laughs> sorry, that was a little off topic, but um... All right, Pablo. Pablo, you said the algorithm. You did it. <laughs> Showed me up. <laughs> so, TJ, or do you, Drew, do you want to ask uh, the first questions or? Sure, and before we start, uh, for our podcast listeners, Holly is in her self-proclaimed Star Wars room, uh, so that's something that I, I aspire to have at, at some point, so props, props to that. Uh, yeah, bombs in space, that's the whole thing. I am a huge Star Wars nerd. I've actually spoken at Star Wars Celebration twice. Uh, I've been to Skywalker Ranch, so if y'all want to nerd out on Star Wars, I am all about it. <laughs> okay. uh, we, we are well-versed in Star Wars. Uh, all right. Uh, so, uh, you had a few engineering related jobs outside of college. Um, but I guess what, starting in 2004, you started working for United Space Alliance as a flight controller, uh, on the space shuttle. So that's a, a really interesting job. What exactly does a flight controller do generically? And what was your role in, uh, on those specific shuttle missions? Okay. Uh, so generically, a flight controller, uh, I guess the best way to explain it is uh, whenever the astronauts say, Houston, we have a problem, when they're talking to Houston, those are flight controllers. They're the people on the ground who are monitoring the data from the spacecraft. And whenever there's a problem or whenever there's not a problem, um, they're monitoring that data and they're making sure that everything goes okay. So whenever there is a problem, you know, hopefully there's nothing like with Apollo 13, um, we have procedures and we tell the crew, you know, go to this procedure, you know, go to this step, work, you know, this work, this step, go to this switch, go to, you know, this page in this book. We, we work the crew through problems and then even nominal things like docking, you know, it's, you know, go to this page, go to this go to this step and we, and so that's what we do is during space flight, the flight controllers during nominal times, we, we just work the crew through their normal day. And whenever things are off nominal or whenever there's a failure, whenever there's a problem, we have books for that too. And we work them through those failures. So it's just Houston, we have a problem. The flight controllers are Houston. Uh, For the space shuttle, I was the electrical power system or the EPS officer on console Um, uh, for shuttle. What that specifically constituted was the fuel cells because the shuttle had fuel cells. That's how it produced electricity. 
so I was responsible for the three fuel cells. Uh, the shuttle fuel cell specifically, we had oxygen and hydrogen. So we had five hydrogen tanks, five oxygen tanks. Those two would combine in the fuel cells. They would produce water, power, and heat. So the water the astronauts could drink. We could also transfer that to the space station. So the ISS crew could drink it as well. Power, it would power the vehicle. And then the heat, we would just uh, radiate it out to space. And so that's what we were responsible for. Um, the fuel cells themselves, the hydrogen and oxygen tanks, and then all of the DC and AC electricity downstream that powered all of the equipment on the shuttle itself. How large of a team were you working with on just the power system? Just the power system, we had about 10 people in our group. Very interesting. Now, uh, just kind of looking at the dates here, uh, it seems they fall into the uh, shuttle return to flight mission, STS-114. Were you a flight controller on that mission? I was. That was my first mission that I worked. I was not certified at that time. So I was an OJT or um, on the job trainee. And so I, yeah, I just watched that mission. What what was it like? uh, (laughs) Oh gosh, this is going to sound really bad. It was boring. (laughs) That's a good thing in NASA, right? That's a good thing when you're talking about return to flight. Well, so you do sims, right? And the sims that you do to train you to work on console they're throwing all these failures at you all the time. So it's just like constant action. And the actual mission itself, there's no failures, which is good, which is really good. So it's like, wait up, where's the action, you know? So um, yeah, it's kind of, I know it sounds bad to say that it's like whenever things are going well, it's it's boring, but it's, it's a good boring. It's a good boring. So yeah. <laughs> was, it, was it like that every time or um, like, was it, was that first mission especially um, tense due to being returned yeah. to flight of shuttle? Yes, and- it absolutely was because it was the first mission where we had the OBSS or the orbiter boom sensor system. And that's where we did the, um, the inspection of the belly of the shuttle and so we had never done that before. And we did the RPM, the roll pitch maneuver, where we, uh, right before we docked with station, we kind of did that little flip. And so we, you know, we were inspecting all the tiles. We were getting all of this imagery and the, the actual imagery people, those folks were at the console next to mine. So they were getting all of that data down and, and inspecting it and looking at it and, you know, so they were doing all of that, which was, you know, super interesting for them. And we were just making sure that we didn't have any foam hits. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have anything to compare it to, to be fair, because I didn't work any missions before that. But it was it was so exciting. Um, just the vibe and the atmosphere, you could tell, you know, everyone was just so excited to, just to be flying again. And, um, yeah, and, and just doing all these maneuvers and everything. And then I was just there, like, you know, I was just, like, so excited, like, oh, my God, I'm in mission control, and there's a shell in space, and this is all I've ever wanted to do my entire life. And so, yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. I'm not going to lie. That sounds so cool. And it brings home, you know, I've, I've, like, I've thought about what goes on in a shuttle mission before or what happens in a, in a modern mission, but hearing you describe it, and you just talking about the fact you were there in mission control watching this just brings it to a whole new level of this was real and it was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Yeah, I mean, I had like my shift was, was like from like three, three or four a.m. until like 10 a.m. or something crazy. Like the hours were so bad. 
And um, that's why they give it to the intern. And no, so <laughs> I mean, well, I, I was working with a certified oh, okay. person, right? <laughs> but you get like assigned a shift months before. Mm hmm. And you're either orbit one, orbit two, or orbit three. And orbit one is where the crew's just waking up. And, um, and so you have a lot of activities there. And then orbit two is kind of where they're, uh, they're still continuing those activities. And then they start getting ready for bed. And then orbit three is where they're sleeping. That's called a planning shift. And so those, you know, the crew's asleep. There's not a lot going on. So the, those guys or those folks get, um, they get everything ready for the next day. So I was, I don't remember if it was orbit one or orbit two, but it was, it was an exciting shift. There was a lot of things going on, but when, when you delay due to orbital mechanics, because you have to rendezvous and dock with the space station, every day that you delay the launch time shifts to about 25 minutes earlier than it was the previous day. So you could start off having like epic hours, right? Like everyone wants like the 2 p.m. to the 10 p.m. shift or whatever, or like the 11 a.m. to, you know, the the 7 p.m. shift or whatever. And uh, and then if we delay for like a couple weeks, it's like, oh man, now I'm, now I'm getting up at 3 a.m. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, you know, the, so those guys that were bragging at the start of, you know, whenever the, the schedule's published, it's like, oh God. So yeah, you never know. You never know. It's not like, you know, the managers playing favorites because when it's all said and done, you have no idea what the hours are going to end up like. Well, how do you prepare for that? How did you, you know, the week preceding that return to flight, what were you doing to get ready to, to go into that? Um, well, we get a couple days off to sleep shift. Uh, so what I would do was I would, uh, I would get black poster board and I would tape up all my windows and just uh, read over like all of the, so every, every shuttle mission had a different payload. I believe return to flight SCS 114 was an MPLM multi-purpose logistics module, which was like a um, kind of like just a, a giant, like if you're in college and your parents send you a care package, it's like, since we hadn't been to the ISS for so long, it's, they needed supplies. And so you study like for the MPLM, it's since we were the power people, how much power does it take? You know, things like it needed to be heated, right? Because we get cold in space. So like how much power do the heaters take? Where does that, where does that heater power come from? What bus does it come from? What, you know, what fuel cell powers the bus that powers the heaters to the MPLM? So that whenever those questions were asked or if there was a failure, you would just be familiar with your system and you would study the drawings and you would study everything specific to that mission um, that you needed, that you would be, you know, that you would need to know if those questions ever came up. And so, yeah, just you sleep shift and you study everything specific that you, that you might need to know should those questions arise if there was a problem. Now over your career, uh, over the multiple shuttle missions, was there ever a time when you were on console and something super major went wrong or maybe a minor uh, issue? And when something like that happens, is it all on you as the point person to resolve that? Or do you have that team of 10 people uh, on call to help as well? That's a good question. Um, my first certified certified flight was STS-117. And um, I came on console and uh, we have, so we have, 
we work nine hour shifts and the first hour of your shift, the person who's been on console is handing over to you. The last hour of your shift, you are handing over to the next person coming on. And so this is my first certified flight. I don't remember what day it was. We had already docked the station and I come on and, um, <laughs> and I'm reading the log because we keep a log every, every time anything happens, like the crew, um, you know, anything major docking rendezvous, we, we have a, a, a template and, you know, we, we hit enter and we hit a, a button and it, it records the MET, which is the mission elapsed time. And it records the GMT. And it's like, this happens at this time. The crew did this, the crew did that, this, this, you know, we are, um, switches, you know, we, we made a call for the crew to flip the switch and they did it. So we have a log of everything that happened and when it happened. And then we have a handover form, which is basically like, you know, just kind of notes of, Hey, this is what you really need to be mindful of. So I come in this one day during one seventeen, and they're like the Russian computers on ISS build. I'm like, okay. I, why do I why do I care? I mean, I don't want to sound like why do I care, but I being on shuttle, it's like we just don't really think about the Russian computers on the space station. And they're like, well, the Russian computers, uh, they affect reboost. And I'm like, okay, uh, great. And they're like, well, um, well, now we have to do reboost. <laughs> I'm like okay spit it out and it's basically we have to get this fixed because without the russian computers we can't reboost the station and if they can't if the station can't reboost itself um then we have to evacuate the station and it's gonna fall into the ocean so reboost is like when like Aerodynamic drag or whatever, orbital drag. Right, right. It boosts itself drag back into orbit. Right, it can't yeah. boost itself back up. So what you have to do on your shift today is <laughs> power down everything you can because we have to save our cryo, which is the O2 and the H2, the fuel for the fuel cells, um, because we need as much time as possible to figure out how to solve this problem while we can use the shuttle to reboost the station. Keep in mind, this is my first certified flight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, okay, okay. And then the person who was handing over, you know, they left. I'm like, bye. <laughs> <laughs> I think in movie terms, when I think of NASA mission control, like you said before, was it as dramatic as I would imagine? Or because um, there are a lot of smart people in NASA and you guys are trained very yeah. well. You, like you said, you have a book for every problem. Is this a problem that yeah. wasn't in a book? Yes and no. So this exact problem, no. Power downs, yes. We have a ton of power downs that we need to do. I mean, that we can do if we ever need to. But this was kind of a modified power down where it's like you have power downs that you do in certain situations. So we never had a power down where okay, we need to power down everything, but it's still while we're docked and it's in the middle of the mission and it's 
you know, so it's like you have power downs that you do during entry or for other situations. So we kind of took the power downs that we already had. And I literally went from console to console and talked to the operator. And I was like, okay, what don't you need? What can you give me? And just made a list. And so I took the power downs that we had. I took what people said, you know, I don't need this. I don't need that. And building on that, um, we started working on this power down and then the next team came on. And so we have three shifts, orbit one, orbit two, orbit, orbit three. And by the next time I came on board, we were ready to, you know, we had a working um, power down. We have, we had a computer program that simulated um, every piece of equipment that would be turned off and on. So we, it would calculate how much cryo we had because that's our fuel. Once we run out of cryo, we can't keep the shuttle up anymore. So they had, they had taken our power down and put it in this program. And so it, you know, it told us how many extra days we could get on orbit. So it told us how much extra time we had to solve this problem. And uh, mm. me and the, the person who, because there was two of us on console, we have a front room and a back room. I was a back room at the time. And we looked over all of the, the two shifts, the previous two shifts work. Uh, so we had at this time, six pairs of eyes to go over everything. And we agreed it looked good. And, and so we uplinked it to the crew. We uplinked this procedure, like here's this power down. And so the crew starts, you know, flipping switches and turning everything off and, and, uh, and it, it bought us time. And so they, they were able to solve the problem. I believe it was like humidity and wires or something that short circuited it. And it was uh, like they, they, the way the Russian computers were wired, uh, they weren't redundant somehow. I, I like, we're not fami that familiar with the Russian part of the station. We're just, they're kind of secret about it. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so it was something like that. And so anyway, they were able to get them back up and running and we didn't have to deorbit the station. And anyway, <laughs> all is well. So yeah. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, it wasn't, to, but to answer your question, no, it wasn't super dramatic because we are trained yeah. so much. Like we train constantly and you just have, even though we've never in training, we had never had that particular thing thrown at us. You are trained so often with so many other things thrown at you that it's not, it, not you know, if you're going to work in mission control and if you expect to think you're going to memorize every problem that's thrown at you, get you know no get out it's you're not trained on what to think it's you're trained on how to think and so it's that you know how that out of the box thinking is you know is what we're trained on and so it's it was like okay we're on, well i'm in a sim let's figure it out and so the team is so used to working together and doing those things that it was i'm not going to say it wasn't a big deal it definitely was but that pressure you know no one freaked out or anything it was just a Another day on the job. The growing trend in industry, especially um, tech and space and everything, is autonomy and autonomous systems. So having spent a lot of time on a team of flight controllers during a manned mm -hmm. mission, I'm sure uh, you might have some opinions on the advantages or disadvantages of having minimal people in the loop in terms of uh, a program, with, especially with humans in aboard a uh, a space station or something. For a specific example, um, 
in SpaceX's grand plan, when they have multiple flights per day, they would like to reduce the number of people monitoring the flight itself to like one or two people and let the computer handle the rest. And their new capsule has very minimal actual inputs for the astronauts on board. What, do you, what are your opinions on, you know, what humans bring into the equation? And do you think that the technology now is at a point where people at NASA or astronauts or everybody would be willing to trust it enough to be autonomous? That's a great question. Um, that's a really good question. And it's something that we have discussed at NASA, not officially, just m- m- me and my fellow flight controllers, you know, having a beer after work or whatever. Um, just completely hypothetical situations. We feel that you need that human to be there because it's, a, I, and maybe this is my own ignorance, just not being aware of exactly where we are with that type of technology, how far it's come. Um, but there's just something to be said for that human type of decision-making where when you have so many failures, you know, I think a machine could do it up to a certain point, but whenever you have so many failures stacked on top of each other, there's so many gray areas that come up. So take our final SIM to get certified. Whenever a flight controller has a final SIM to get certified, they always put you in a situation where it's a gray area where you could take route A or you could take route B and neither one of those routes are wrong, but you have, you take a route and you have to justify your decision. And as long as you can do that, pretty much, you know, you pass. So because there's so many gray areas, it's, it's just so many things that have to be taken into account that I don't think you could program a computer to take those things into account because we don't know what we would have to program it to take into account because oftentimes so many situations are completely new. And whenever we get to one of those situations, it's like I would have an idea of what I want to do and I would try to justify it. But then I would talk to one of my my coworkers. They would have a completely different idea that maybe I had never thought about and they would justify it. And I would be like, you know what? That's brilliant. So there's so many unknown unknowns that personally, I don't think we're there yet. Um, there's just something about that human intuition and I don't know how to describe it. I don't want to say it's just a feeling because I don't like to, I'm an engineer. I don't like to base things on feelings. I don't know what the word is, but it's just, there's unknown unknowns. And if you're going to make a computer do it, you have to plug everything in beforehand. Yeah. That real time, like real time human ingenuity in the loop. Right. Right. To be able to, that creative thinking, that thinking outside the box, that this is something I've never seen before. I need to come up with something new. And I don't know if we're there yet. Yeah. And you did mention being trained on how to solve a problem rather than how to do this solution. Than to memorize. Right. Right. So yeah, that's my thought on it. I mean, it could do some things for sure, but personally, if I'm going to be in that rocket, I want, I want people. Do you have a sense of 
Is that how the astronauts you've worked with would feel as well? And so this entire interview, I am not speaking for NASA at yeah. all. I'm just going to put the my personal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would think so, but I don't know for sure. I think we got a similar answer from Chris Hadfield when we talked to him. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so as a kind of a follow-up to that, during your time as a flight controller, did you see any new technologies kind of being added to your role to help you uh, be a flight controller? Any like uh, new programs or assistive technologies? And did that change like how your day-to-day went from the first mission you were on till the last mission of the program? Not really. I think because um, when I came on, because it was return of flight, and by that time, President Bush had already declared that we, we would we were going to retire the shuttle. They weren't really spending a lot of money on that kind of thing. So no, it was just, you know, instead of trying new stuff now, whenever we're, we're just going to end the program in a few years, you know, just sorry, sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> I wish I could say I we had cool things, but yeah, we don't have a lot of money as it is. So they weren't going to let us play with cool toys. That's, that's really interesting insight because a lot of programs, they'll go through a lot of development and for most spacecraft, they'll have a, you know, hardware freeze where there might be five, ten years before it actually launches and technologies progress. It's like we made these decisions and we built all the supporting equipment around it and according to our test, it's ready to go and it works. And so let's go out and accomplish that mission instead of trying to play that constant catch up that you might see in stuff like the tech industry where... You know, you're getting an app update every week. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, I was there, I worked shuttle from 04 to 2011. And I think by that time, especially by return of flight, um, we weren't really focusing our uh, our resources towards, you know, new technologies and things like that. We were focusing on retiring the shuttle and going to Constellation. Um, to bring it to the present, I guess, um would you like to talk about Orion and talk about newer, interesting technologies that Orion is bringing? So my system, I know, I feel like, oh gosh, I feel like so bad because no, it's just tanks and pumps <laughs> and pipes and radiators. Okay. It's like, I know, I don't have the cool stuff. That's okay. <laughs> so we're not the designers, the engineer. We have an engineering department. Like, So I'm the safety department. I'm an engineer, but I'm in the safety department. And we have an actual engineering department who works more with the designing part of it. Oh, okay. I see. And then we, yeah, so we kind of get the design after it's already been done and we review it. And we look at it from a very pessimistic point of view. Like, so the Picking engineers out have all their, the things that will break. Right, exactly. So the yeah. engineers like come to us like, ta-da, like it's so beautiful. And we're like, but it, this could happen and this could happen and this could happen, you know? Yeah. So, and then we send it back to them. So we're not the popular kids. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, we, we look for exactly what could break. How could things fail? You know, did you think of this? Did you think of that? Did you think, you know, all this other stuff. Um and so we go back and forth and back and forth. And then after a while, you know, we kind of come to an agreement that this is the best design and this is what we're going to go with given all kinds of things, you know, money and everything. Yep. So, yep. so what are some of those uh, gotchas that you might have that when, you know, you get an engineering design and you're like, something that immediately stands out to you is like, oh, you didn't, uh, <laughs> you didn't anticipate this, go back, like this is a, 
critical, something that an engineer might miss or something that especially the general public wouldn't assume would be an issue? Uh, well, for the general public, and this isn't really my system, but just from my operations back background, it's weird things like um, being in operations, we, we trained the crew and we had to do the same training that the a lot of the same training that the crew would go through. So we had to take their same classes and shuttle mock-ups and things. So it's weird things like switches. Like you wouldn't think, but switches. And if it's like a switches in the up or down position, you, you know, it's like they'll make, sometimes engineers will make like every switch will be like up will be on and down will be off. And then they'll have like one switch where up is off <laughs> and down is on. And it's little things like that you just don't think about. But as a human factor, you know, from a human factor's point of view, it, it's little, it's just really little things like that. Just, you know, the engineering, you know, they're brilliant engineers and they've got that part down. You know, they're not going to miss like a relief valve or something. Um, but it's it's little things like that, that, you, you know, you really have to be on the lookout for. So th those are the parts of the system that I, I really try to scrutinize. Uh, so earlier you mentioned that after the shuttle, you worked on Constellation briefly. Were you involved in the ARIES program or was that part of Orion, which you're now still a part of? Uh, no. So what I worked on uh, for Constellation, I worked on the batteries and I worked on the wiring system. For ARIES 1 or ARIES 5? Uh, no, for um, Constellation. So not really the rocket itself, but the capsule. Okay. Yeah. So that's all I did there and then not for very long. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of like to get more into the opinion space and like your insight okay. as being, you know, a member of this uh, industry for a long time, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, the first one is fun. What's your favorite <laughs> spacecraft and why? Crewed and uncrewed. Pick one of each. Okay. Shuttle. I mean, I'm, I'm so biased. <laughs> Shuttle. Shuttle's my, shuttle's my baby. I, it's, I mean, for obvious reasons, it's, is it you because know, you spent I... so much time with it or uh, yeah. from an engineering perspective, the fact that it's like the most complex it's, I just spent so much uh, time with it. I, I got to crawl around in two of the vehicles all around the payload bay. I got to, you know, sit in the, on the, in the flight deck and the mid deck and in the bunny suit and yeah, all of it. And, <laughs> and I mean, I just, you know, on console and just learning all of the different procedures and I had so many SIMs and, uh, and I got asset entry certified and that was amazing. And I got to see two shuttle launches and, uh, it's just, it will always have, a, and, and shuttle was what I was, you know, brought up on from a little yeah. kid. So that's what got, you know, besides Princess Leia, that's also what got me into it was, um, you know, seeing shuttle launches. So, yeah. What about, um, what's your favorite uncrewed spacecraft? It can be a satellite. It can be an observatory. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, Cassini. Oh, Cassini yeah. and Hubble. Can you give a yeah. qu quick uh, reasons why? Like what, what about them touched you? The, the Hubble, the the galaxy, the field of galaxies. I mean, that picture was just. I mean, it was. It's just mind blowing. It was, and I mean, it just, it just expanded our our knowledge and perspective of of the not, literally not the world we live in, but the universe yeah. we live in. I mean, and I mean, that was just. We had never seen anything like that before. I mean, that picture just completely changed our perspective on everything. Mm -hmm. And Cassini, I just, I love Saturn. And it was really our first 
you know, it was our first, you know, Huygens, it was our first lander on another planet beside, you know, that wasn't Mars. I mean, you know, and Mars is so much like Earth, relatively speaking. Yeah. Um, and Saturn is just so, it's so exotic. And then we went to this little moon and it's like, you know, the methane and it was just so, it's like, I don't know, like something out of Star Trek or something. It was so cool. <laughs> Yeah, you can like Star Wars and Star Trek. You can. It's cool. <laughs> I always ask that. On I, I I interned at a a space startup, and the first question they asked me was Star Wars or Star Trek, and I just said, "Can't we all get along?" Yeah, can we all get along? That's you know what I did when I was <laughs> when I was speaking at Star Wars Celebration. I I did that in my intro. I was like, you know what? And I like Star Trek too. And I don't want to hear anything from you people. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. funny. Why do we, why do we have to fight? They're not mutually exclusive. So I, I was going to reroute the, the conversation toward more current events, I guess. Okay. At NASA, did you spend time on working with the International Space Station? With Shuttle, I'm sure you were like pretty mm-hmm. familiar with it and stuff. So um, the space station's been around for a while, and mm-hmm. um, the new uh, budget proposal um, for 2018 um, has a, a clause in there saying that you know the government will stop completely funding it in 2025 or thereabouts Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um what is your opinion on the future of the space station uh or uh, further um having a persistent human presence in space with things like uh, the deep space gateway which orion uh will ferry astronauts to and and so forth so um i actually was a flight controller on for station for about a year that's so cool okay (laughs) Uh, i was i was an oso an operations support officer, which is like the mechanical group. Um, they're the in-flight maintenance, the IFM group. Uh, I don't know how familiar how familiar you are with it, but um, they're like the handy people. That's cool. uh, so when something breaks, <laughs> when something breaks on station, Oso is the group that is responsible for fixing it. Uh, so when something breaks on station, you can't just go to Home Depot right. and pick up your parts. So there are actually people whose jobs it is to keep track of everything that's on board space, you know, the space station. So we work with that group. We figure out, okay, what broke? What do we need to fix it? What do we actually have that can fix it? And then you come up with a plan and you send it up to the crew and they fix it. Um, I was specifically responsible for the space toilet. Um, when the space toilet breaks, the astronauts are not happy. The space toilet <laughs> had a particular habit of breaking either on Friday or holiday weekends. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, anyway. So, yeah. So, I do have some experience on station. Um, mm-hmm. At first, I was I was not happy with this private privatization thing because I, I just don't see how that's going to work. That is my now, just because I don't understand it doesn't mean it can't work. That's just my own ignorance talking. Um, or it could actually just be a terrible idea, which I will say that's my brilliance talking. Um, but yeah. I did talk <laughs> but I did talk to a colleague who said that this has actually been in the works for a few years now. I didn't know that. And he feels completely differently about it. He's worked on station for a lot longer than I have, and he he thinks it's a great idea. So, yeah. Yeah, in our last episode, we kind of went through the budget and we talked about the ISS. And with the remarks on privatization, whether it's private modules or 
diverting some of the operations to a private company. None of us are, are exactly that sure how it's going to work because ISS is this marvel of engineering and it does take a, a an army of people to operate it and maintain it. I'm, I don't see a company or a group of companies willing to take on that burden. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's the it's from training the astronauts to training the flight controllers to I mean, you know, we have we have books of flight rules. Do we just hand everything over to them? Do we have all these procedures? Do do we just hand everything over to them? Right. I don't know. And and that's just me speaking from an operations perspective. But think about things like the the we have all these contracts with international partners, yeah. with ESA, with Japan, with Russia. I, I I don't even know how that works. Yeah. So, um, from you, you mentioned, um, you know, talking about dealing with stuff when it breaks is pretty old i guess um like technologies continues to keep moving forward and whatever mm -hmm. but you can't it's not easily serviced <laughs> to yeah. say the least so um does there come a time when the iss becomes too old to maintain and like our space stations like maybe now it's easy to build a new one i don't know i'm not an expert but like from a flight controller perspective is there a point when you like see a part and say like that part is too old or that part probably will fail in 2025 or something like that. Well, I mean, we have reliability studies that, you know, talk about parts and how many, you know, cycles per, you know, for a pump or something, how many cycles yeah, they, yeah. you know, in a lifetime they can, they can handle. But um, it's, it's a really not that easy. It's a good question, but it's not that easy. You can't really ask it like that in a, given the space environment and the political environment like yeah it's not like a car you know where it's time to just get a new car it's well it's the time to get a new space station oh okay well, <laughs> if only right well we need a new launch vehicle you yeah. know well that's going to take congress to approve a new launch vehicle you know money for a new launch vehicle we're gonna have to build a new launch vehicle and then we're gonna have to start building modules and then we're gonna start up you know, handing out contracts. I mean, it's, if, you know, I, and from my perspective, as long as we can keep it going, let's keep it going because we're not going to get a new one. Yeah. So then person, that's just my personal opinion course, is yeah. um, we're never going to do another ISS. So just keep it going as long as it's going to go. Now, would you rather the ISS, uh, there's been a lot of studies of like 2028, 20, they can keep it without serious maintenance, uh, keep the ISS running to 2028 while the deep space gateway gets built around the moon and have two operational space stations for a period, uh, or to shift all the money that goes to operating ISS to a full-on rapid development for deep space gateway. Um, keep ISS going because... Deep Space Gateway is going, it's it's going to get pushed back. And I'm not saying that because I have some kind of inside information. I'm saying that because everything gets yeah. pushed back. Yeah. It, it just it just does. I mean, that's that's the space world. Look at everything. <laughs> look at, yeah, look at everything. Know, look at every <laughs> shuttle launch. Look at, you know, look at SpaceX. Look at Boeing. Look at Orion. Look at EM-1. Look at, you know, everything is constantly right. gets pushed back. So just keep IS, ISS is, is a constant. Just keep it going. The current NASA administration has made clear, um, you know, not only in publications, but now in 
budget movements and things to focus on human spaceflight um, and, um, you know, with the question of moon or Mars, um, focusing on the moon. Um, yep. Working in human spaceflight as an engineer, you're still working with on Orion and things like, mm-hmm. does it feel like there's a common consensus and common direction in terms of NASA's goals? And like now, is everybody on the same page when it comes to moon versus Mars and... Or does that even like flow down to where you're working? Yeah, it, it kind of depends on where you're working. Like, I mean, we're building the capsule and the capsule we're building doesn't change. Like it, if we're going to the moon or we're going to Mars, there's really no difference in my job or the people I work with, mm-hmm. their jobs. So it's for us, that's really, a, it doesn't change. So do these budget shifts, like, do you anticipate them affecting your day to day? I don't think so. Personally, for me, no. I mean, yeah. I'm asking are... you to predict the future, so I don't ex- expect you to have a solid <laughs> response, but you know what I mean? Uh, no, not for the next few years, at least not through this ad- administration. So, I mean, if it's four years or eight years, um, I'll just say, yeah. So whenever we get a new president and, and I mean, a new elected president, not maybe if this one's impeached or not, <laughs> I don't know, but um, a new elected president, I don't see things really changing that much. And and even if, you know, in 2020 or 2024, if a Democrat comes in, um, I mean, I don't see them changing things that much because even with Obama, it was either like, you know, moon, Mars, asteroid. I mean, I don't see them shutting down the human space flight program altogether. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, yeah. there's not really... Uh, many other options that they could, you know, so yeah, I guess other than shutting it down, there's really not much more they can do. Sure. I'm just asking to get your perspective because like TJ mentioned, we did talk about it in our last episode, but we're, um, none of us work at NASA. None of us are really sort of like feeling any of these changes. We're kind of just commenting um, from the outside really. So I think that covers the uh, major budget stuff. We want to kind of slightly change topic to, uh, women in STEM. Uh, yeah. Obviously, you're a big proponent of women in STEM. You have a really inspiring story of going through engineering. What are some of those things that you do on a day-to-day or some of those outstanding things you do to kind of promote that mission forward? Um, so I do, um, I'd like to promote, uh, this is a really great program, um, Skype a Scientist. I think mm. the website's just skypeascientist.com. It matches classrooms and teachers with scientists and engineers and so like you fill out a form and it and you fill out you know like what kind of engineer you are or scientist you are what your work is what you studied and then the the teacher of the classroom fills out you know a similar form but you know what their class is studying what they're interested in and you know you talk about if they're um maybe their their classroom is filled with you know children of of color they come from a certain background maybe they want a woman maybe they want you know person of color maybe they want just all you fill out the form and you kind of match up and so you can skype with the these classrooms and these kids and so you can talk about you know you have similar interests and so you can talk to these these classrooms and it's really 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 cool so I, um, I do that. I go around the country 
I talk at different conventions. I talk to uh, colleges. I talk to uh, my husband's actually, um, he's in education. So I, I do things with his school. Um, so yeah, so it's just different things like that. Um, and I try to bring the Star Wars aspect to it because it, it's, I feel like it gets the kids interested instead of, oh, look, here's this old lady and she's just going to talk about her boring job and I don't care. But it's like whenever I bring R2 with me or I bring a Porg, you know, it's like or BB-8, they're like, whoa, you know, so they get really excited and I feel like they pay attention. <laughs> kind of a side note, have you seen uh, like a big impact on now that we have Star Wars movies pretty much every year inspiring kids to go into STEM or space related things? Uh, I don't know. I think it's still too early to tell since uh, it's only been a couple years since the, the, the reboots. So I don't know, but I, I do. So the talks that I do, um, I do women in STEM. I do science and science fiction and how the two inspire each other. I do uh, NASA and Star Wars, and then I do how Princess Leia inspired me. I actually gave that talk. I was invited by the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum to give that talk at the 40th anniversary of Star Wars last year. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fun. We got yeah. to watch it in there. We got we got to watch Episode Four in the IMAX theater. It was really cool. That's cool. Um, so I do those four different talks and it i don't know yeah it's i think it's just really too early to tell but i'm i'm hoping to you know really tie the the two together so um i don't know i just to hope to get the kids interested you know because it's like this stuff's really cool guys you know when i was growing up we had shuttles launching all the time and yeah. we were building a space station and we were doing all this stuff and now it's just kind of like we you know we don't have as much to show them so I feel like to keep, you know, that's one of the things that NASA has always done, at least for me, was, you know, like inspire that next generation. And right now we do have ISS and it's cool, but there is nothing cooler than watching a shuttle launch. So if I can somehow tie it in to, you know, what whenever they see um, TIE fighters on TV, which by the way, TIE Fighter twin ion engine. NASA has a triple ion engine. Look up the Dawn spacecraft. It's true. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe it'll spark an interest. So, A lot of our listeners um, are obviously interested in space. Um, and I'm sure many of them, if not all of them, feel that, you know, excitement when we talk about um, space tech, space exploration, and all the things that we're sharing today with each other um, and, you know, being really excited about things. Do you have any advice for them, like the average listener, um, to inspire um, their friends, family or, or children, especially um, young women that, that are coming into STEM fields? And do you have any advice for them to inspire those around them to get involved in space? And uh, space thrives on creativity and innovation, which comes from literally anywhere and so like it's a really hard problem to solve and like people from no any it, background is, can, it is a hard problem space, to solve so. um yeah um so first of all i would just say that space if you want to work in space everyone's like you know study math and science and that's that's not wrong you know if you want to be an engineer if you want to be a scientist but if you want to work at nasa you know what 
we need space lawyers. We need communicators. We need people to sew the spacesuits for the astronauts. We need people to write music for some of our programs on NASA TV. I mean, we need artists to do some of our work for, you know, any of our, our work on our web pages thing, you know, we need coders. We need, so if you are interested in space and you think, well, I'm just, I'm an artist or, you know, I sew or I'm not a scientist, you can still work at NASA. So that's one, you know, one aspect. So don't give up. Um, Another thing, if, you know, if you are an engineer, if you are a scientist, NASA has, I mean, the, the, so the three, the top three engineers that I've seen at NASA are mechanical, electrical, and aerospace engineering. So if any of those, if you want to be an engineer, if any of those three interest you, great. But we also have scientists like geologists, astronomers, astrophysicists. We also have doctors, you know, you know what? Astronauts need doctors. We have a flight surgeon on console. So if you want to be a doctor, you can work at NASA. So whatever you want to do, pretty much, you can work at NASA. Like literally, you could be a lawyer and work at NASA. So if social media is your thing, you want to be do communications, look how many people follow NASA on Twitter. So it, you're not limited. You don't just have to be you know, an engineer, you don't just have to be an astronomer or just a scientist. And I say just a scientist, I'm talking about myself. Um, but for, you know, women, especially it can be intimidating and, and it just, you know, don't let it, I mean, I know it's, it sounds easy to say, but just, just stick with it. It's so worth it in the end. It's so worth it. And working at NASA school was so much more intimidating than my actual job is. It's like once you kind of get to NASA, I feel like no one cares as long as you can do the job. It it's so much it's valued so much more than, you know, what you look like or anything else. I mean, school, yeah, people are immature. Just ignore it. But um yeah, once you get to the job, if you can do the job and you're competent and you're good at it, and you earn the respect. It's great. It's so good. I think that's an excellent note to to end on. Um, thanks a lot for speaking with us. This is super interesting stuff. And uh, I don't know if you could see me geeking out over here at True <laughs> Google Hangouts. Uh, but um, yeah, if people if people are listening to the show, um, want to follow you or get in touch with you on so- social media or something. Um, where where can they find you on the internet? internet? Uh, okay, so you can follow me on Twitter at um, I'm at Absolute Space Girl. That's Absolute with no E, like the vodka. <laughs> Space and Girl is G R L with no I because Twitter wouldn't let me. So it's A B S O L U T Space G R L. Great. Um, so once again, uh, this is Holly Griffith. Um, what's your tech? Can you remind us of your official title again? Uh, oh my gosh, you want the long version? <laughs> so I can shorten it to be uh, your um, NASA uh, engineer. You're a NASA engineer with uh, on, extensive. On Orion. Ex- yeah, on the Orion capsule. <laughs> there you go. We'll uh, just leave it there. <laughs> okay. All right, great. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This is a great conversation. Thank you. This is so Thank fun. you very much. 
Share your thoughts and ideas with us on Twitter at RITSPACS, Facebook.com slash RITSPACS, or send an email to SPACSCAST at gmail.com. You can learn more about RIT Space Exploration and SPACSCAST at spax.rit.edu. Our music is by Nelson Scott. Find more at his website, thenelsonscott.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers or the employer of our guests.